0: Hello, welcome to Montana Classical College. I'm Brian Cerberus Wilson, and this class is called Which Way, Western Man Nationalism versus Globalism. Now, in most of these lectures, I would like to stick pretty close to the texts that we're reading, because most of the authors that we are reading are much, much smarter than I am, so it makes sense for you to learn from them rather than learning from me. Nonetheless, I thought I would take the liberty of saying a little bit more myself than I usually would. In a typical lecture. So with that being said, there's going to be a sort of lecture appended to this a few days later on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to sort of add a little bit because I don't think I'm going to talk about Alexander Hudson's piece uh, very much here. So today's lecture is going to be broken up into three parts. The first part is introductory thoughts. In the second part, I will give a kind of satirical history from the perspective or point of view of the globalist or one who is massively concerned with universal human rights. This will, in some way, go over the major themes and questions that Kenneth Waltz and, to some extent, Alexander Hudson bring up in the first two readings. In the biggest chunk of the lecture, I'm going to give a praise and blame of Curtis Yarvin slash Moldbug. I'm mostly going to focus on his piece uh, called Rest in Peace Globalism, Dead of Coronavirus, whereas it was previously called, The Missionary Virus. Um, because I think his piece is the most interesting of the ones that we read this time. And because I think in many ways, he opens up new pathways for thinking by critiquing other pathways. But it's not obvious to me or clear to me at the moment that his suggestions or thoughts about the way forward are the kind of suggestions that we want to take up. Okay, with that said, let's turn to our uh, first part of the lecture. I suppose maybe I'll say one more thing. Uh, I'm not going to record or include musical interludes, but if I were you, in between part one and part two, I would listen to Dmitry Shostakovich's second waltz. I listened to it a lot while I was preparing this, and for some reason, the uh, world history in part two is somehow meant to be uh, listened to in tandem with Dmitry Shostakovich, or at least prepared by him. Nonetheless, let's turn to part one, Introductory Thoughts. In Plato's Republic, Socrates argues that every actual political community is metaphorically in a cave, which is to say that every political community is mired by confused and conflicting moral opinions. Therefore, in order to liberate ourselves from these confusions, we are compelled to think thoughts that our own political communities will necessarily find distasteful and even dangerous. It is difficult to liberate your mind all at once. This is partially because your heart is so deeply attached to the conventional opinions that your political regime has sought to instill in you since birth. In Plato's Apology of Socrates, where Socrates is sentenced to death for corrupting the young and for not believing in the gods of the city, he says during his defense that, quote It is not possible for me in a short time Remove from you a slander that you have held in your hearts for a long time. That is to say, we do not usually coldly examine the logic of premises and then make a choice. Rather, at least most of the time, our reason is constrained by or made an instrument of our emotional attachments. This is both good and bad. It is good because it isn't good to change your mind every day about important things. But, Uh, this emotional attachment is bad. Because if you are wrong about important things, it is very difficult to jettison your attachment to a bad opinion, even if your mind begins to see reasons to reject it. Now, why are we talking about philosophy and self-knowledge in a course on nationalism versus globalism? Well, the education we have received, at least I can speak for the United States, has told us repeatedly and in many different ways that we need to prepare to become global citizens. Setting aside the fact that this phrase is obviously a contradiction in terms, we can say that it is absolutely necessary to consider the allegedly deplorable alternative that it is better to be a nationalist than it is to be a globalist. Now, I don't want to offer a dictionary definition of either nationalism or globalism that we then try to go find in the texts or books that we read. Rather, it is best to let the authors that we will read disclose the different dimensions of both alternatives as we go. I will, though, say one provisional thing at the outset. Most of those who believe in globalism would be disappointed to see you take a course with our reading list, and they would say so without even having to have read most or even any of the books on the list. Which is to say, our task in this class is not merely theoretical. It is also practical. We do not simply want to understand nationalism and globalism. By reading, thinking about, and discussing Curtis Yarvin, Carl Schmitt, Jean Lardegai, Ernst Junger, Leo Strauss, Dugan, Friedrich Nietzsche, Yukio Mishima, and the Bronze Age Pervert, you have already taken an important step away from the globalists that would rather ban these books and cancel those of the authors we will read who are still living. And once we begin to see how massively globalism, or you could also say internationalism, is advocated by those who stand against liberal education in the highest and strictest sense, we realize that we have to take a stand in favor of the possibility of such liberating education. If we think that undertaking noble action or understanding nature are essential tasks for human beings who are serious or good, we may see that we have to take a stand against those who would seek to rid the world of heroism, and who turned a blind eye to natural limits and possibilities. We have to ask, who will defend the possibility of nobility and understanding nature, the globalists or the nationalists? I ask again, should we be nationalists or should we be globalists? As much as many might wish, there is no middle way on this question. Either You think it is good for the world to be broken up into separate and potentially competitive entities, or you think it is good for the world to be ruled by one monolithic sovereign and idea. The world must be one or many. All actions or thoughts presuppose or point to the world needing to be one way or the other. Let's discuss the two visions of justice that tend to animate the respectable defenders of nationalism and globalism. Nationalists often speak highly of sovereignty. If you want to give a social science-y answer to what sovereignty is, you could say that it is a monopoly of the legitimate use of force over a given territory. But it is much more than this. It is also the rulers or people of a nation determining their own way of life within their own borders. Thus, when a nation tries to impose its way of life on another, or tries to take the territory of another nation, we say that this is a breach of sovereignty. Globalists prefer to speak about universal human rights. The United Nations put together a declaration in 1948 that declares in its preamble, quote, and this will be broken up a little bit because the first paragraph is so unbelievably long without a single uh, period, so there will be a few breaks in this. At At any rate, quote, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world, now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this universal declaration of human rights as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, End quote. You can probably see even right here that there is a massive tension between sovereignty and universal human rights. Four, these rights claim that there ought to be severe limits on how a people determines its own way of life. And we might say that all of these limits favor the individual over and against the community, state, or nation. Now, before we jump into discussing our class readings for the day, please allow me to offer you a, what I hope is somewhat humorous, but surely brief and unfortunately common view of world history as it is seen uh, by many who are in support of either or, and or globalism and universal human rights. So this would be a good time to listen to Dmitry Shostakovich's uh, second waltz. All right, now that you're done waltzing, let's turn to part two of our lecture. Uh, We'll just call this a common view, or rather an all too common view of world history. In the beginning, there were many bad and backward people who did many bad things. They did not know any better, but that's not the point. This lasted thousands of years. Then, a subset of the bad people, uh, they're called Christians, killed a lot of each other in the Thirty Years' War. This led to the first important world historical event, the Peace of Westphalia, it is said that the peace ushered in the idea of sovereignty. The idea is that you don't worry about what goes on within the borders of other nations. If the other nation is composed of degenerate Protestants that have fallen from the way, so be it. Sovereignty does nothing uh, to eliminate war, as Hobbes and others would point out. For all nations are still in a state of nature with one another, there being no overarching policeman or Leviathan, above all nations, that can bring down the hammer against miscreants. To put it as Kenneth Waltz does, the anarchic international system is a self-help system. No one will come to save you unless you're strong enough to save yourself. And as Waltz further points out, there's a big difference between the domestic sphere and the international sphere as far as that's concerned. In In the domestic sphere, there is a policeman that you can call if you live in a good country. There's no one that you can call in a bad country, but there's especially nobody that you can call uh, when it comes to international relations. There's no country that's necessarily powerful enough to save you. They might choose to save you. They might not, but they're not obligated to do so. Now, to continue our history lesson or uh, silly history lesson, we could say lots of other things happened after the peace of Westphalia. Fast forwarding, then Woodrow Wilson said, this is a paraphrase. World War I was very bad. What if we got rid of war? Now, some people agreed in speech to this idea, but importantly, almost nobody agreed indeed, not even the United States. We fast forward just a few years. Then World War II happened. Now, what Hitler did, and for some reason, many are so so often quiet about what Stalin did, inside of his borders was the worst. Thing that anyone has ever done. This leads to the second important event of international relations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This document is more or less a progressive version of the United States Declaration of Independence. And it claims that all human beings all over the planet have dignity, innate dignity, regardless of who they are or what they have done. The source of that dignity is uh uh It's hard to say. It's hard to say. The document doesn't say it at all. It sort of asserts it. Now, in Alexander Hudson's article, she gestured toward many potential sources of dignity. But ultimately, she relies on a majority consensus of religions, philosophies, and nations rather than trying to offer a concrete account of what the source of dignity is. Rather, dignity seems to be an allegedly self-evident truth that enough respectable people agree on. However this may be, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights does not insist that all countries form democracies. But if you read all 30 articles, and we will talk about all 30 articles in a future uh, or very soon to happen uh, lesson, you'll see that a mega-egalitarian democracy is implied. Okay, so to repeat, (laughs) the major events, Of this picture of world history are the peace of Westphalia, the uh, so called horrors, and and indeed they are horrors in a lot of ways, and we'll see this firsthand in some of our later readings, but the horrors of World War I and World War II, and the response that is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, within this uh, picture of world history, there are some confusions that emerge. There are now two competing standards of justice in international relations. On one hand, there is sovereignty. On the other hand, there is universal human rights. Remember, the problem that plagued sovereignty is that there is no overarching and overwhelming power which can compel rogue nations to get in line, as a police force would compel a petty criminal. Now, some will mutter, uh, won't the United Nations sort this out? No, it will not. Um, Now, you didn't read this, but as Hans Morgenthau points out repeatedly in his book, Politics Among Nations, the United Nations has only as much power as sovereign nations will give it. If it is not in the interest of sovereign nations to respect human rights, they will not, and none but a powerful sovereign nation can compel them to do otherwise. Shockingly, Morgenthau's critique, or rather, maybe it's not so shocking, but at any rate, Morgenthau's critique of the United Nations is admitted by uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama's United Nations ambassador appointee, Samantha Power. Indeed, she actually goes so far as to say that the United Nations is a tool for American interests. Now, of course, one might have expected that, uh, that this was so without her having to say a word, but the admission is astonishing in light of the allegedly international character of the United Nations. If pressed, I'm sure that Samantha Power would suggest that U.S. interests are perfectly compatible with universal human rights for all. Nonetheless, the way that she puts things is a kind of admission that the United Nations is always dependent on what individual nation states think or wish for. Now, many, uh, I guess you could call them intelligent observers of international relations, uh, I'm putting intelligent quotation marks, have decided that sovereignty is too low of the standard of justice. Incredible observations have been made. In some countries, like the United States, men and women are allowed to drive cars. In other backwards, barbarous countries, like Saudi Arabia, only men can drive cars. Sovereignty protects the gross injustices of countries, like Saudi Arabia. We must abolish sovereignty, then. But somehow these uh shrewd observers have forgotten to ask, wait, why wouldn't Saudi Arabia allow women to drive cars? Why? Why do they do that? I'll admit I'll admit to you right now. I haven't looked into it. I'm not particularly interested. But I don't think a group of Saudi men got together to say, How do you think that we can oppress women? I bet they would like to drive cars. Ha ha, not this century. No. They probably consulted their holy texts. They probably thought about the differences between men and women because there are natural differences between them. And they decided that their law should be the way that it is. Again, I don't know the exact reasons, but I suspect that they do have reasons for doing what they did. They could be wrong. They might be right. I don't know. But if you're among those who wish to change their mind, you're better off asking them why they do what they do. Uh, then you are bullying them through sanctions to do otherwise. Now, to continue on the train of what these so-called intelligent observers are hopeful for, they hope that sovereignty will fade away into the past so that universal human rights might remain supreme. This is because they really care. Now, consider the view uh, of George Clooney He's an actor, but nonetheless, many consider him a nuanced analyst of international relations. Now, in a 2019 BBC article, he made the following observations about the small Southeast Asian uh, Muslim-majority country Brunei. Here's an excerpt. Quote, Hollywood actor George Clooney is calling for a boycott of nine luxury hotels with links to Brunei after the country said, Gay sex and adultery would soon be punishable by death. From April 3rd, homosexuals could face being whipped or stoned in the tiny Southeast Asian state. In 2014, Brunei became the first East Asian country to adopt Islamic Sharia law, despite widespread condemnation. Mr. Clooney said the new laws amounted to human rights violations. In the onslaught of news, where we see the world backsliding into authoritarianism, This stands alone, the actor wrote in a column for the entertainment website Deadline. Brunei is a monarchy, and certainly any boycott would have little effect on changing these laws, he said. But are we really going to help pay for these human rights violations? End quote. Interesting, right? (laughs) Brunei's core export is their international luxury hotels. One idiot actor, George Clooney, without much thought says, You must boycott these. Now, how many will suffer because of this utterance? Note this. George Clooney did not stop for a moment to ask, why does Brunei do this? (laughs) Almost every political community on earth has laws that permit some kinds of romantic relations and prohibit others. International human rights provide far too simplistic of a framework through which we can easily spot so-called injustices. However, they don't help us learn very much. Interestingly, uh, as you saw from the quotation above, Clooney does not even think his sudden call-out will actually change anything. He just wants himself and his friends to remain morally pure, while those in Brunei suffer. And in all likelihood, no one will suffer whom he hopes will suffer. So, in the world, in the so-called uh, world history that you see laid out above, you can already see the core themes and difficulties that Kenneth Waltz and Alexander Hudson, Alexander Hudson are thinking through. The reason for picking Waltz, Hudson, and Yarvin together for this opening talk is as follows. Waltz lays out the basic structure of international relations as ultimately anarchic, meaning that war and the domination of one nation by another is always possible. The structure always necessarily permits it because it can't do otherwise in as much as it is anarchic. Indeed, the very situation of anarchy conditions the behavior of nations and leads them to arm themselves, and indeed arm themselves more than might be rationally necessary, leading others to be suspicious and causing others to do the same. In this way, Waltz seems to suggest that war is an unfortunate, though inevitable, misunderstanding caused by the anarchic structure. In turn, Alexander Hudson responds to this structural situation by suggesting that universal human rights provide a superior standard of justice, that all nations ought to abide by, if only they are enlightened enough to recognize the standard. She calls, in essence, for a re-education of the world with a view to telling them that all humans have innate human dignity. Curtis Yarvin's article is designed to show how much we stand to lose should the world turn out to be ruled by those who support universal human rights. Yarvin's incisive and often brilliant critique helps us see what is at stake But it's not clear to me that he is entirely convincing about the proper way forward. Okay, so for those of you who are inclined to take musical interludes in between parts, you might listen to Yugen Doga's gramophone waltz. Is that how you pronounce that guy's name? I have no idea. Uh, But links will be included to the songs in the Substack article, as well links to any a book or article or song or news piece uh, that is mentioned. Okay, so let's turn to part three of the lecture, a praise and a blame of Curtis Yarvin slash Menchus Moldbug. First, the praise. And I think the upside uh, to Yarvin is very considerable. So we're going to be looking closely first at the article, uh, Rest in Peace Globalism. When I turn towards the blame, I will look a little bit more generally at unqualified reservations, his initial blog, and also The Grey Mirror of the Nihilist Prince. Uh very quickly as far as that goes. But at any rate, we're gonna look very closely at his article, um, Rest in Peace Globalism from the American Mind right now. Okay. So, Moldbug reasons in this article on the basis of things that most liberals would probably agree with. As far as Uh, using the word liberals go, I would say in what follows, I mean capital L liberals, but also lowercase l liberals for the most part, but you can do your best to distinguish uh, which one it would apply to more depending on the situation. Nonetheless, Muldig reasons on the basis of things most liberals would probably agree with. In so doing, he reveals massive tensions or false assumptions that any serious liberal would have to confront if they wish to maintain any sense of cogency in their belief in globalism or internationalism. Indeed, Moldbug's insistence on using the word internationalism instead of the more pejorative globalist tells us something about his rhetorical intention. He wants the disenchanted liberal to take off their friend-enemy distinction goggles for a little bit, so that they can think in a less impassioned way about the matter at hand. This is not to say that Moldbug, like the internationalists, is hopeful that we can all get along but rather that he thinks that some people can be convinced to take to take the plunge into thinking about things in a very different way. Now, near the outset of the article, he points out that a fool, or in other words, a person who merely relies on common sense, would insist that, circumstances being what they are, there's no good reason to fly out of China across the ocean. Now, it's worth mentioning that this article was written uh, back in January, so there's a lot of things and reactions about the coronavirus not known to Yarvin at the time. Uh, So at any rate, look at this from the perspective of about January 30th, um, as far as coronavirus stuff goes. So that's in a way what his article initially is is, uh, looking at. Okay. So, the progressive is much too intelligent or empty-headed to rely upon common sense, and instead relies upon institutionalized modern science. Quote, Modern leaders cannot think for themselves. They cannot trust fools. They have to trust international scientific institutions. They are and must be existentially dependent on the collective accuracy of the global scientific community. End quote. As Moldbug persuasively argued in an earlier article called Pervasive Error, scientists, being human beings, are easily corruptible or, on average, are far too willing to let their conclusions reflect the will of the institutions who employ them. Progressives, who, in a certain sense, aren't actually that interested in democracy, despite their protestations otherwise, love the rule of experts, which effectively means that modern scientists have been granted increasing and unprecedented social authority at the exact time that they become more and more ideologically compromised by progressives. This is not a coincidence. The first barrier, then, that the recovering internationalist faces in thinking clearly about China and his deference to institution... Oh, sorry. The first obstacle that the internationalist faces in thinking clearly about international relations is his deference to institutionalized or compromised scientific experts. Here's a quote from the article. China is an autocratic total state may have the world's highest state capacity for disease control, end quote. Now, some critics of Moldbug's article pointed out that the Chinese have not even made the best use of their autocratic state, that they don't know how to use it. That's not the point. The point is to try to show, or that Moldbug's point is to try to show somebody who's starting to fall out of love with internationalism, that there really are serious advantages to forms of government that trample people's rights in order to effectively secure them from serious dangers. Sometimes love has to be tough in order to be love at all. Moldbug even produces a multicultural point of reference for the recovering internationalist who doesn't trust his common sense or even the West yet. He directs our attention to a scientist in Hong Kong who said that, quote, substantial draconian measures limiting population mobility, says Dr. Leung, Hong Kong's top guy, both a virologist and a virus fighter, should be taken immediately, end quote. This helps the disenchanted liberal relax. Ah, okay. So non-Western people who aren't bad, like the Chinese, also think it is okay to quarantine people and restrict movement? Tell me more. Subsequently, Moldbug begins to show the disenchanted liberal tensions that always inherit in the internationalist approach to things. He begins this educational endeavor by pointing out that internationalists are not evil. They truly mean well, at least most of them, and are motivated by a concern for justice. Quote, here's the shocking secret bias motivating our public health experts. One, they are deeply passionate and principled people. Two, they have a shared, single purpose, to make the world a better place. Three, they share a deep, almost spiritual belief that a more open and interconnected world will be a better world. This concern for making the world better can't be fulfilled because it is overwhelmed by ideological purity, seeing anything that makes the world less open as a grave and barbaric evil. This distorting lens obliterates common sense wherever it gazes. Strikingly, despite his apparent temp- attempt at persuasion, Moldbug repeats a famous line of his You can't reason someone out of something that they weren't reasoned into. If that is so, what is the purpose of Moldbug's essay? Perhaps he wishes to move the recovering internationalist by making him feel shame instead of reasoning with him. The recovering internationalist might think of himself as the kind of person who is, for lack of a better term, big-brained, and not just an automaton, who is flitting along with the most fashionable and powerful ideas of his time, ideas which don't even turn out to accomplish what they wish to And this uh, helps lead into something that we talked about at the beginning uh, that we saw Socrates say in Plato's Apology, quote, I cannot in a short time remove the slander you have held in your hearts for a long time, end quote. To reiterate, humans don't just coldly examine premises and then trade away their old way of life for a new one. Rather, time ossifies our convictions. This means that they need time to become supple again. Moldwug might hope that a long article will be the acid that sneaks in and begins the process of loosening foundations, leaving doubts where certainty once was. And this, I think, is one of his greatest virtues. To continue, the doubts that the recovering internationalist feels might become especially strong in the face of lines like this, quote, and when internationalists, internationalists think about the world becoming more interconnected, they think about it becoming more American Certainly not more Chinese. We are imposing our ways, which are superior, on them. We are turning them into copies of us, accepting only the things that we can't change, like skin color and language. Moldbug is turning the screws on the recovering internationalist, who is still attached to a shallow view of diversity. It is precisely that which internationalism claims to promote that it destroys. If this can become clear to the disenchanted liberal, he might become able to ask for himself as if for the first time, what do I want? What would a good government look like? What are more coherent and promising goals for political life? Now that the former internationalist is ready to ask these new and dangerous questions in light of Moldbug's tutelage, Moldbug sets him aside in a thought experiment. Our newly educated former liberal might be too raw to think about reforms in real life. He is, though, now ready to go out onto the playground of the mind, where his education can safely continue. He asks us to think about what the world would be like if no one, if no one at all, left their respective states. What's more, what if things stayed this way for a hundred years? Moldbug notes that he has not refuted internationalism; rather, he says he has deconstructed it. He has shown its motivation, its blindness, and the fact that it is at cross-purposes with itself. The next phase of his argument seeks, then, to provide a powerful and, as he says, sexy alternative to internationalism. Just as internationalists dreamed of ending war for all time during the interwar period, Moldbug now promotes his own overly hopeful and admittedly incomplete alternative. It is not entirely clear to me the Moldbug is really outlining immediately actionable reforms, actionable reforms. He's not really much of a policymaker or political theorist. Rather, he seems to be more interested in how we are mentally disposed towards politics and with trying to neutralize the major- majority of dispositions he encounters, in effect, clear-peeling them. As he says in the article, "Quote, But imagine a world where travel between hemispheres is cut off next week and stays cut off for years, decades, Centuries. Would this be a disaster? No. It would actually be fine. It would not even change much about most people's lives. End quote. This notion, while surely shocking to some internationalists, is more or less completely at home in a genuinely multicultural perspective. That is to say, if all cultures are equally good, as we've been told, why would they find themselves needing to cross borders so often? Why are they running away from home? This insight naturally leads one to consider whether his country is better or worse. Worse countries would naturally wish for open borders, while better countries would naturally wish for these borders to be mostly closed. So, the internationalists claim that they want to protect and promote diversity. Instead, it gets this, quote, Might not we say our species is made richer by its differences? But if we try to blend all of these ways to be into one way, we either destroy all but one or end up with bland, beige, mush. This rhetoric, although not orthodox, is mere inches from orthodoxy, end quote. This line also nicely sums up Moldbug's approach all along of reasoning near lines of orthodoxy while subtly steering us away from orthodoxy. He begins where the modal American feels comfortable and quietly steers them toward more dangerous or more thoughtful waters. And the American who is aware of this pull will see that a rigorous examination of their own opinions would have pushed them this way if they would have had the wherewithal to attempt such a thing. The larger stakes that Moldbug seems to be laying out are these. If the United States fails to abandon the internationalist dream, it will become increasingly more ill and will only accelerate its potential demise. Okay, so that's pretty cool. I I, th- I really liked uh, this piece by Moldbug, and think it's it's really one of his best, maybe one of the best new things he's written. There's there's more to say about some of the recent stuff in the uh, nihilist prints, um, but nonetheless, uh, after this praise, let's turn to a blame of Moldbug. So, turning back to the rest in peace essay, before we turn a little bit to Some of his other writings. He says, quote, any country at any time can or should be free and able to isolate itself completely from the world, end quote. Moldbug does not use the term right. He doesn't say that nations have a right to isolation. But doesn't it look like he's referring to some kind of right? And if the states have a right to isolation, doesn't that mean that someone has to be around to enforce that right? That is to say, Moldbug seems to be not talking about a world that Waltz is talking about where Waltz says that there's a self-help system. But in a way, Moldbug yields to the logic of Waltz. He doesn't mention it, but he yields to the logic of the situation and says that, quote, if the rest of the world truly recognizes a regime and that regime truly desires a policy of absolute isolation, the rest of the world has a duty to help enforce it, end quote. In other words, nations around the world must be ordered around the principle of respecting isolation, and so well-coordinated that no nations will experience resentment at being the only ones compelled to take police action against violators. Is this really possible or desirable? Isn't this just another one-world state-leaning solution on Moldbug's part? To put the criticism a different way, those who support universal human rights usually push for more international coordination as a way to prevent war and protect rights these people are trying to remove chance and mystery and possible chaos from the world on the other hand the supporters of nationalism and sovereignty are compelled to leave nations in their present anarchic relations with each other not necessarily always because they want war but because they realize that there are other things that they want that they can only get if they remain a separate bounded uh, entities. Now, Moldbug wants safety and permanent peace, which is hoped for by supporters of universal rights, and Moldbug wants the possibility of widely divergent ways of life that sovereignty makes possible. In other w- words, he wishes to combine what many might think are the most desirable features of the nationalist and globalist visions um, in a way that doesn't seem at all like they can fit together. For of the people clamoring for this uh, world to be more unified in such a way that the United Nations could have some kind of international police force, those people are all globalists. It's like Moldbug's imagining an international police force of nationalists who all protect the various nation states, but also don't allow them to compete against each other. I don't know, there's more to say about this. And now maybe I'm taking Moldbug's thought experiment too seriously. Nevertheless. I think his intent is serious, insofar as we see a theme emerge in this rest in peace globalism essay that was latent in his blog Unqualified Reservations, and that has become a cornerstone of his new book in progress, Grey Mirror the Nihilist Prince. And this idea, or this theme, is detachment. We might say that Yarvin is counting on, and hopeful of, nations becoming so detached from globalism that they just give it up. As his thought experiment suggests, it would probably require something much deadlier, much, much deadlier than COVID, in order for some kind of neo-global isolationism to take place. And he suspects that once people get used to this isolationism, they might realize that they were much too worked up about the world's problems to begin with, and uh, leave everything alone. The disposition that Moldbug, or to repeat, The disposition that Moldbug sees as indispensable for escaping the current contest for power is one of detachment. In one way or another, this is a theme that Moldbug has always been intensely interested in. In Unqualified Reservations, his old blog, detachment seems to be latent in pieces uh, called Political Sanity or pieces on non idealism. And there'll be links to those uh, articles. His key concern was liberating readers from a pernicious attachment to mysterious universals like democracy and equality. To turn away from democracy and and equality was to be red-pilled. Now, in this blog, or Unqualified Reservations, Moldbug points to the necessity of trying to rip out the Borg implants that constantly shoot the wig, which is to say, progressive view of history into our bloodstream. To state the obvious, Unqualified Reservations was and is a right-wing blog. To be on the right is to take a side. It's to be against the left, not just to understand the left, but to see it as an enemy. Red pilling makes one passionate, and if one becomes dominated by this passion, he will inevitably make mistakes when he observes the world, since he will be motivated to see the world in terms dictated by his team. To be on a team entails telling stories that describe this team as noble and good, while claiming that the other team is vicious and bad. Now from here, Moldbug, seeing these kinds of thoughts, enters into the clear pill, uh, that sort of series that he started writing for American Mind but didn't finish, that maybe he'll finish for his book as a kind of appendix. At any rate, the clear pill is tasteless unbelief. This is the chill pill. It drains you of passion and allows you to see the world as it is, to the extent that this is possible. And Yarvin admits that there's a lot that we can't know about the world. This is a step away from the red pill. Yarvin meant to show in his unfinished series how progressivism, constitutionalism, and fascism all rely on destabilizing lies that activate thumos, that which he says is the desire to matter or to be important, albeit in differing ways. Each of these ideologies count on people believing in ideals, and these ideals are always at risk of running into conflict with good governance. The ideals Or those who are under their thrall will inevitably make a policy that promotes progress in the case of progressives, reverence for the founding in the case of constitutionalists, or love of the nation at the expense in the case of fascists, at the expense of doing what is best. In other words, there are always cracks in the stories that are projected onto the reality dome walls. Yarvin wonders if it is possible to think beyond or outside of ideology altogether. To put this another way, Can political life function without the noble lies that Plato thought were indispensable and required in even the best conceivable political regime? Now, turning to Yarvin's new project, The Grey Mirror of the Nihilist Prince. Yarvin describes two kinds of detachment, and I don't think that they fit together. Or, at any rate, I think Moldbug needs to do more to show how they fit together. First, I'll put the... Two contradictory statements in Yarvin's own words, and then I'll try to elaborate. Statement A, early in the first chapter of uh, Grey Mirror, uh quote: Detachment is a hard spiritual task in which no one can succeed perfectly. It is not a fact or even an idea. Detachment, like Zen, is a practice. End quote. That strikes me as a highly elitist version of detachment, and it makes sense to me. Um, but that th- that's something that one could do and that it would be very difficult and only for the few. Now, in his second definition of detachment that he offers, or a second sort of account, we'll call this uh, detachment B, I think this is something more for the many or that's something that most people would be capable of. He says, quote, A pure subject has no emotional relationship with power. Power demands nothing but physical compliance. Minimal compliance is non-aggression plus taxation. Uh, i.e. libertarian paradise, or le-libertarian paradise. While real history was never so pure, this abstraction is a normal civilized condition that we call natural detachment, end quote. So again, both of these are from Grey Mirror, chapter one. Can you see the difference between the two? In the first case, one intentionally takes on a difficult spiritual task. Common sense would dictate that only the few The excellent are capable of hard spiritual tasks. The second case, natural detachment, is different. It is natural and without effort, achieved by anyone living in pre civilized regimes. It is a detachment that is possible for the many. Now, let me try to put the contradiction a little bit more starkly using examples that Yarvin provides in the unregistered interview he did, the podcast Unregistered. I will put a a link to that. So, here is the first, to, to re-describe this sort of spiritual strength uh kind of detachment, I'm going to call it philosophic historian detachment. So this is the sort of higher kind. Yarvin says in the unregistered interview that it would be weird if a historian wrote a book about the War of Roses and was passionately partisan. We would think that he was strange if he was jumping up and down by the time he got to the end of his book. Yarvin seems to counsel that we that we can obtain this level of detachment in real time. It is not clear to me that this is possible for most people, i.e., this kind of detachment is reserved for Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian. Thucydides' detachment flows out of a deep vision and acceptance that all peoples pass away. Thucydides imagines what the ruins of Athens and Sparta will look like to future observers, after he and everyone he knows are dead. Now. Uh, you could also think of Nietzsche's statement that there are heights from which the tragic ceases to look tragic. Or Socrates says that philosophy is learning how to die, meaning that a core task of philosophy is reconciling oneself to one's mortal condition. Again, whether you're talking about Nietzsche, uh, Thucydides, or Socrates, uh, or even what Jarvan describes with this kind of historian, this this kind of standpoint, this sort of unbelievable detachment that allows for observation in real time of events that affect you, This is a standpoint I take to be reserved for the few. Now, the second kind of detachment that Yarvin describes, natural detachment, is something we might call peasant or hedonic narrow vision attachment, detachment. Yarvin's other example from the unregistered interview is this. When you travel to a South American country, you don't care about voting. You don't want political power. You don't strive for influence. Rather, you just want to be safe, have fun and just generally avoid anything painful. Yarvin suggests that this is how we should feel about our own country. You don't need deep vision to want to have a safe and pleasant time. Therefore, this seems to me a kind of detachment that is more achievable for the many. Is this contradiction resolvable? Maybe. Presumably, Moldbug writes for the few. Most people find themselves too feeble or too constrained by contemporary standards of respectability. To read and take his thoughts seriously. Only someone who already has some distance from these standards will have the ears to hear Yarvin. Perhaps at the crucial moment of collapse, or near collapse, these types will be in a position, with their nice regime textbook from Yarvin, to provide the kind of governance that he will articulate in detail in subsequent installments. At this point, the many who are more disposed to natural detachment will fall in line. This is the only way to reconcile the two detachments. For, as Yarvin himself points out, the person who is detached does not try to change public opinion. Indeed, he does not try to change the world at all. There is a lot to say about all this, but I would suggest that Yarvin is hopeful of cutting off certain human possibilities. As far as the few are concerned, the powerful man of action. Has no place in Yarvin's future. As far as the many are concerned, will life begin to be drained of seriousness if most people pretend to be on vacation and how they see their life? Uh, in other words, what's the point of being in one's own country if you're always on vacation, or that's how you treat things? Um, at any rate, this helps us prepare for our discussion next time on Carl Schmidt and Immanuel Kant. Schmidt wants the world to remain a serious place. Uh, And this means that the world is potentially dangerous. Kant prefers for the world to be a safe place, where one can always be maximally moral all the time. As much as I think that Yarvin is an outstanding spur to thinking, I wonder if his hopes are ultimately closer to Kant's than they are to Schmidt's. All right, thanks. I look forward to hearing what you have to say in the substack comments. I look forward to being savagely refuted by you in a brutal way and to learning from different things that you have to say. Uh, This is Brian Cerberus Wilson, out.